You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. The truth. It can feel like a simple thing, but sometimes, especially with kids, it can be a bit tricky. Nate Cook is the coach and owner of Gritbox. He believes that telling your kids the truth is important. Hi, Nate. Welcome. Hi, Siobhan. How are you? Is telling the truth that simple to you? It is. There we go. Now I've led you in there. Let's keep going. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you <laughs> yeah. a, a few curly ones. Yeah. Okay, good. Do you tell them the truth about the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus? Oh, when they were little, uh, they did believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Yeah. Yes. We used to do lovely things by putting sprinkling grass across the carpet, you know, half-eaten carrots, all those kind of things. But some people would say that's lying. It is lying to the point of... Allowing a child to have a fantasy and a belief in something bigger and more magical. So that's okay? <laughs> I think it's okay. I'm just curious to know if you think it's okay. I think it's okay in the sense that we need to believe in something greater than what's around to start with. We need to kind of believe in things from an early age to be able to kind of believe in other things. I think we're kind of, you know, we believe in something. I don't think if you spoke to a child about, you know, now that you've been told that, you know, the Santa and the Easter bunny are not real, is that something now that, you know, we need to kind of now put them through therapy or through sessions or things (laughs) to kind of now work out that it's been a lie for the last, uh, you know, kind of however many years, six, seven years, and it's now time to kind of know that this is just kind of like a fun, magical kind of thing that we do. I don't know many children who are kind of, you know, scarred or traumatized from that experience. They understand what it is and why you do it, and then they kind of get on. Yeah. Mm. Uh, maybe I should be telling my 22-year-old that Santa's not true anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I held on to it for as long as I could. Yeah. What about when a pet dies? When a pet dies, we've, we have, we've had a fair few pets in our family. Uh, we've lost three pets with all of our children. Two of those were very sick that had to be put down because they were um, really, really ill. And that was the best, you know, the best option for us provided by the vet. And telling them the truth about what's actually happening and what's going on, I think, can give them a little bit of a life lesson, as hard as it was, in the truth of this particular Leroy is sick, it's now time that the vet needs to kind of, you know, make him... So you you wouldn't swap out the goldfish? No, I wouldn't swap out the goldfish, no, or the puppy. (laughs) Hang on, we had a... That's it. Oh, my God. Imagine swapping out the puppy. That's it, especially if it's the different breed. How do you... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're not stupid. No, that's exactly right. Okay, what about something that will stop a fight. So my children are almost five and seven. They fight all the time and they have this really, really overdeveloped sense of justice. So they have to have exactly the same thing all the time. So if one child gets a treat on the way home or if they get to hang out with mum or anything like that. So case in point, my daughter got really cross with me the other day when she found out that I'd been about two terms ago, I picked her brother up before her and dropped her brother and her cousin home without her. Mm. She got very cross. That wasn't fair. So in that situation, to stop a fight, would you lie? Would you say, actually, I mean, and you've got to remember, this isn't just a one-off fight. They will fight about anything they feel is unfair. I can relate completely. <laughs> Being a father of four, you're either with one, with two, with three, you're all at different times at different places. So 
if we do drop in and pick something up or buy something or along the way, I kind of feel that that's generally in the moment, that's in the time. Do I feel that I need to kind of go home and tell the child that this is what we just did and you just missed out or those kind of things? No, I don't feel. But I am fair in the sense that I will kind of back up to know that the next time, you know, we're out and about or we're doing something that I'll kind of share that same The other same child process. might get... Yeah, they might yeah. get that little sort of pick up or we might call in for someone. So it's not they, necessarily lying not to no, tell them. Yeah, just not to tell them. Yeah, because then, okay, so I don't tell... If I go home and I tell them and say, this is what happens, do you then need to fix it on the spot or you say, hey, we will within the next 24 hours or rectify that and we'll go for a walk down the street and we'll do this or we'll do that. So um, it's more around, you know, and I think it's important that kids have special time when you've got more than one that have special times and special moments. Does that need to be shared with the other just so that they don't feel left out? I don't think so. I think it's important to have them. Thank you. I'm glad we had that conversation. I feel much better now. (laughs) Often... One is tempted to lie when one, as a parent, is thrown an unexpected question. What's the best response when you're lost for words? Silence. <laughs> Silence. Silence. I don't know. Giving some time. Depending on the age of the child, whether we want to kind of admit it or not, our, ch- our children may not necessarily all be listening to us, but they're always watching. So they kind of know when mum and dad are kind of, you know, put in awkward situations. They can see our body language. They know it themselves. Because if you ask a child a question and they try and kind of work around the answer, they'll, you know, they'll move their body. They'll kind of adjust. They won't make eye contact. They'll look away from you. They pick the same thing up from us as well. So I think in that moment, it's really important as much as you can to be honest without being brutally honest, depending on what the topic is, to be as honest as you possibly can, because they're also learning from us every day. So if they get used to mum and dad knowing that they kind of tell little fibs or they tell little things to kind of try and protect us, they'll grow up feeling that that's okay to do it. If it's an emotion, I need to say it, say it. Yeah. Um, Being aware of the age as well. Obviously, if you're talking to five-year-old to a 15-year-old, we all know, I, I believe that truth sets you free. Yeah, if you tell the truth and you're straight up, you can't hide from anything. You don't need to make up any little stories or find a way to to do it. And I think most of our little, you know, fibs or lies or things that we may be telling our kids are trying to protect them from the emotion or what we're actually telling them. We're not allowing them to actually experience that feeling of what the truth might actually do to them. If we raise our kids and deny them of the ability to be able to feel uncomfortable or awkward or vulnerable to something, I think we're denying them of a primal kind of urge to be curious, find out and understand. So I think by stretching the truth too far without having, you know, like, you know, they may not be ready for it. I think we're denying them the ability to handle a, handle a comment or handle a situation. I think one thing parents do struggle with is making the truth age appropriate. For example, um, war and if they hear about something or something that is the darker side of humanity, mm. I think sometimes it, people find it hard to use the right words so they don't, because life is scary. You don't necessarily want to scare your five, six, seven-year-old. Yep. Um, if they ask you a question, you want to respond. What's the best way of working out an age-appropriate way to navigate those kinds of topics? 
for me, when I'm talking to different, like in, you know, working with kids or working with parents and things like that, you know, this, this does kind of pop up. How do I talk to my son about, you know, all different topics from, from alcohol to drugs to, um, you know, to sex to all these kind of things, you know, for teenagers moving on. I think in those kind of things with younger kids, it's understanding and kind of teaching parents to talk to their kids about knowing that people have different maps of the world. They see the world differently. And sometimes those two views don't actually get on. So you might relate something to in a playground where you may have a good friend and then there's another person at school that may you may butt heads with or you don't agree with the way they talk to friends or the way they do certain things. Unfortunately, when kids grow up and they become adults, their opinions become stronger. Yeah, And sometimes those people don't actually think about their points of view and they don't think about them. And sometimes they do silly things without understanding it. So I think kind of relating back to a kid, you know, as in like using a playground, using friends. Using their world to explain. Using their world. That's right, because they understand their map of the world. So you may say to a child, do you have a friend at school or somebody at school that talks rudely to other people? And they go, yes, that's Johnny. Johnny's grumpy. He's always grumpy with people. Okay. Do you speak to people like that? No, I don't. Oh, but so that means you both have different ways in which you talk to people. Yes. Oh, so if he talks that way, is he right or wrong? In your eyes, he's wrong, but he looks at you and says, well, maybe you're wrong. But the fact is that you both see things differently. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just that you see things differently. And unfortunately, when we grow up, those kind of things become more, they become stronger. Yeah. And greater consequences. Greater consequences, 100%. Is there ever a time when you think it's okay to lie to a child? No. No, I think, I know we talked about at the beginning, we talked about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy and those kind of things. I think they're magical kind of explorations. It's like reading a book about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, was Snow White a real person and were there really dwarfs? You know, we want to create that magical part of the world that you can believe in something greater than what you kind of see around you. I think when it comes back to kids asking you questions about certain things, I feel as uncomfortable as it is, it's a teachable moment for a parent. If it feels uncomfortable and it feels awkward, act on it. Don't put it off. Parents have got enough chatter in their mind about what they're putting off and what they're not doing. Yes. That if a child asks a question, sit them down, talk about it, and be as honest and transparent within their own, you know, I mean, a tricky one. You know, if a kid said, oh, mum, do you think I'm dumb? because the kids at school say I'm dumb because I can't read or I, I don't know maths. That's a tricky question. Do you know what I mean? Like, because if you're sort of thinking, well, especially if you're thinking, you know, your son is done, dumb, but you know, <laughs> not that you're they're thinking all that. All, they're all geniuses. That's exactly right. But, you know, in that sense, it's like, no, that's one person's opinion of you. And you're going through your map or your world. Yep. You're doing is creating it a different way than what somebody else is. So it's really important for, for you to kind of understand that you're learning differently than somebody else, which is true. And your path is different than somebody else's. Is that lying to them? No. It's explaining why you may feel that or why somebody may call that because you're addressing what they've actually said. Yeah. No lying. I'm, I'm no up lying. For it. You're up for it? Yep. yep. And especially because you've allowed the other magical things that I love. Yeah. Nate, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Siobhan. That's Nate Cook. He's a coach and owner of Gritbox Mind and Body Coaching. And for more information about Nate and the work he does, head to the notes in this episode. We'll pop links there.
we're discovering some amazing connections between the gut and our brain. Now, new research has shown a link between the gut and autism. You know, we say we have, I don't know, gut feelings or we get butterflies or we're suddenly nervous and we feel like we have to run to the toilet. That's our gut brain talking to our main brain. Could it be that our second brain, just like our main brain, could there be some glitches in the communication? And so that's what we've really been chasing to have a look at in that second brain. That's Associate Professor Elisa Hill-Yarden. She's made some fascinating discoveries that could change the way we help people on the autism spectrum. Join me for that conversation next on Feed, Play, Love. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning and hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt. Siobhan Hunt.